0: Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 14, The Bacchae, Dionysus is Coming Home. Last time, Euripides' interpretation of the Electra myth took us to the world where revenge is exacted by a couple of insufficient heroes who are then saved by some equally unimpressive gods. But where, Euripides did manage to slip in some stern words for the city elders to chew on. His last play, produced in 405 BCE, takes us to a world the likes of which we have not seen before. In this play, the god Dionysus is a central character, albeit in human disguise for much of the action. It's enigmatic and troubling, and often thought of as a difficult play, but also fresh and innovative. A surprise, perhaps, coming as it does at the end of a poet's life. The Greek playwrights generally seem to buck the normal pattern of a writer's work becoming repetitive and less interesting as they get older. All three of the greats that we have come to know so far produced arguably their best works towards the end of life and, as a good, even a great, age. But be warned, in terms of the strangeness of the Bacchae, Euripides comes out on top by far. The play opens before the royal palace at Thebes. We're back in the distant past here, long before Oedipus and his family came on the scene. Dionysus takes to the stage and tells us about his birth. He's the son of Zeus and a mortal woman, Samil, at whose grave he now pays homage. She died when Hera found out that she'd been carrying the child of Zeus and persuaded her to look at the god in his true form. As she does so, a lightning bolt kills her but Zeus takes the unborn child and nurtures it himself. Dionysus knows that not everyone in Thebes believes in his semi-divine nature of his parentage, especially his mother's three sisters, who maintain that the story of his supernatural conception was just put about by his mother, who had in fact become pregnant by more conventional means, and wished to cover her shame with that fantastical story. His cousin Pentheus is now king and rules by a strict moral code that rejects the eastern religions including the orgiastic rites of Dionysus' own cult. Dionysus wants to put an end to these objections and let his cult flourish. His intention is to punish his family for their treatment of him and their refusal to worship in his cult. So he has made the women of the city mad and sent them into the mountains where they will observe the rituals he demands. He has disguised himself as a man so that he can observe them and then reveal himself to all the townspeople as the god that he is and therefore vindicate his mother. He will then make his cult permanent in the city. He leaves and the chorus enters. They are the Bacchae, the female followers of Dionysus from the east who have followed him voluntarily and they sing an ode praising him. Tiresias, the blind ancient seer, enters and calls out for Cadmus the founding former king of Thebes. The old men are dressed with laurel wreaths and ready to go to the mountain to join the festival to the god, but they're stopped by Pentheus. He reprimands the old men for their frivolity, saying, But look, another marvel, I see Tiresias, our diviner, dressed in dappled fawn skins, and my mother's father too, wildly waving the bacchic wand. Droll sight enough. Father, it grieves me to see you two old men so void of sense. Oh, shake the ivy from thee, let the thrice fall from your hand. Was it you, Tiresias, that urged him on to this? Are you bent on introducing this fellow as another new deity amongst men, so that you may then observe the fowls of the air and make a gain from fiery divination? Your grey hairs protect you, otherwise you would sit in chains amid the Bacchanals for introducing knavish mysteries. For where the wholesome grape is found, at women's feasts, I know that their rites will not have any good results. He gives out orders that anyone caught joining in with the worshipping of Dionysus is to be arrested, and that this should include the foreigner priest who started the festival. Pentheus says he will have him stoned to death when he caught. The soldiers enter with Dionysus still in his disguise as a priest of the cult. Pentheus questions him closely, wanting to get details about the rites as much as he can, but Dionysus's replies are cryptic and Pentheus becomes annoyed with him until, in frustration, he's taken off to be chained to a bull in the palace stables. We then hear report of how Dionysus revealed himself and broke free of his chains and brought on an earthquake and fire until the palace was destroyed. A herdsman enters, and says that he was attending to his animals with his men when he saw women on the mountainside behaving strangely, running through the forest, performing miracles, suckling from animals and dancing with snakes. He says they saw Pentheus' own mother, Dionysus's aunt Agave, there and attempted to catch her, to remove her, but the women attacked them. They managed to outrun them, but their cattle were torn apart by the women with their bare hands. And the frenzy continued as the women made their way down the mountainside and stole metals and babies from villages. And then when the villages retaliated to defend themselves, the women were able to beat them off with their ceremonial staffs made of fennel. The women then returned to the mountaintop, where snakes helped them clean the bloodied staffs. Pentheus, shocked but strangely fascinated by this news, plans to send his soldiers to the mountain to kill all the women. But Dionysus, returning to the stage in his disguise, persuades him to take a more cautious approach, saying that it would be better if Pentheus himself went to the mountain to see what was happening, but that he should be disguised as a woman. Pentheus agrees, and Dionysus provides the appropriate clothing. As he leads Pentheus off, it seems that he is already becoming crazed, as if he were one of the women, saying that he can see two suns and feels that he has the power to tear up mountains with his bare hands. He also begins to recognise Dionysus as a god, claiming to see horns growing from his head. A messenger then reports that as the pair reached the mountain, Dionysus caused a tall tree to bend so that Pentheus could get onto it and get a view from the highest branches. Dionysus then dropped his disguise and shouted out to the women, pointing out that there was a disguised man at the top of the tree. The women then became incensed and forced Pentheus down from the tree and tore him apart with their bare hands. Agave enters carrying her son's head. She is still under the influence of the god and believes it to be the head of a mountain lion and cannot understand why Cadmus is repulsed by the trophy. She asks for her son so that she can show him her spoils before it is attached to the city walls for all to see. Cadmus pleads with her, and as the influence of Dionysus wanes, she realises what she's done. He then comments that the family have been rightly punished, but excessively. Dionysus, in his true form, decrees that Agave and her sisters will be sent into exile, and as a final act to destroy the family, Cadmus and his wife will be turned into snakes. Agave pleads for pardon, but Dionysus is unforgiving, saying, Too late, you have learnt to know me. You did not know me in good time, and though I am a god, you slighted me. Agave counters with, gods should not let their passion sink to man's level. But Dionysus simply says, my father Zeus ordained this long ago, why then delay the inevitable? And he exits. Once again, this was a well-known myth. We have fragments of a play by Aeschylus called Pentheus, which suggests that Euripides could have been borrowing directly from it and it's likely that there were other lost earlier versions. But Euripides takes the myth and layers it with multiple meanings. The consensus is that the play was written in about 410 BCE but was not presented until 405 BCE when Euripides' son or nephew, Euripides the Younger, produced it. It seems that it was very popular, and that's not just because it won the first prize, but because it's much quoted and imitated in subsequent years. As is often the case with Euripides, there are at least two distinct readings of the play possible. Older commentary tends to see it as an attempt by an ageing poet to make amends for his previous criticism of the gods and the religious norms of the day. In this line of thought, the passages that are expounding on the wisdom of the gods and the futility of opposing them are taken at face value. However, more recent criticism tends to take the view that, in fact, Euripides was being even more critical of the gods than in his previous works. The praise of the god can be taken as ironic when the character of Dionysus in the play is shown as vain and cruel and the deliverer of some pretty horrific vengeance on behalf of himself and his mother. This is from the outset the story of the revenge of Dionysus on the people of Thebes for the treatment of his mother and their disbelief in him. Whichever reading we accept, it's clear that the play is a study of the fanatic in religion and how new religions and cults interact with the older formalised religion. The excesses of the Dionysian cult were well known and feared in some quarters, and the play certainly feeds on those fears in its graphic descriptions of the mysterious rites being enacted on the mountain. The women have lost all self-control and are committing some terrible crimes. We've already seen how there was a societal fear of women who might take control and harm men, and the cult played its part in perpetuating those fears. During this period, the cult of Dionysus was still on the outside of the mainstream of Greek religious life, although it would eventually become integrated with it. Euripides had seen how the cult was growing in strength and influence, and in writing the play seems to ask how accepted religious morality can be reconciled with the excesses of the cult. It's a question that steps into the socio-political area, as moral questions always do. In this way, we can see how sensibilities have moved on since the earlier surviving plays. In the preceding decades, freedom in thought, philosophy and public debate had become the order of the day. In the Golden Age, debate was held to be a good thing in its own right, but restrictions and curtailments were being brought in and free thinking becoming more restricted. In this play, Euripides is still brave enough to give us a debate on where the boundaries for acceptable behaviour should be drawn and how far man can and should follow the will of the gods. Given his portrayal of Dionysus as vengeful and ruthless, most modern scholarship agrees that his opinion on the gods is still firmly in the negative. None of this was safe. Euripides was writing away from the city in self-imposed exile, so perhaps he could feel emboldened by distance, but let's think of his son who presented the play and was presumably in the city to see it performed. There must have been some risk in doing this. It's a sobering thought that it was only two years after the presentation that Socrates was sentenced to death for corrupting the youth of the city and for expressing disbelief in the gods. This is where the act of theatre seems to have had some very special place. Apparently, you could write a play containing controversial ideas and get it accepted for competition. So, There were some freedoms there, even allowing for the sympathies garnered by his recent death. Not for the first time we can see what a special place theatre had in the city. Cadmus and Tiresias are the old men who've joined in with the anarchic rites, risking looking ridiculous dressed in vine leaves and fawn skins, but in the end they recognise that the god can bring joy and self-destruction in equal measure. The early lines delivered by Tiresias, who is much more philosopher than seer in this play, suggest that Euripides had heard rather too much debating in his time and was tired of hearing worthless speeches. The two old men chastise Pentheus for his youthful lack of wisdom, and as we would expect, Euripides extends this to a certain segment of his audience, who, in his view, speak too much and don't think enough. When a man of wisdom finds a good topic for argument, it's not a difficult matter to speak well. But you, through possessing a glib tongue as if empowered with sense, are yet devoid thereof in all you say. A headstrong man, if he has influence and a capacity for speaking, makes a bad citizen because he lacks sense. This new deity who you deride will, I think, rise to great power throughout the land. There are two things, young prince, that hold first rank among men. The goddess Demeter, that is, the earth, whatever name you please to call her by, she feeds man with solid food. And as her counterpart comes this god, the son of Samil, who discovered the juice of the grape and introduced it to mankind, stilling thereby each grief that mortals suffer from as soon as they are filled with the juice of the vine. And also he gives sleep, sleep that brings forgetfulness for daily ills, the sovereign charm of all our woe. God though he is, He serves all other gods for libations, so that through him mankind is blessed. This is then immediately followed by a passage that is undoubtedly in praise of the god, but also includes one of those uncomfortable lines about the nature of women that cause the difficulties in interpreting Euripides' true position, although I think we can argue that this is a character's view, not necessarily the author's. Listen to me, Pentheus never boast that might alone sways the world, nor, if you think so, unsound as your opinion is, credit yourself with any wisdom. But receive the God into your realm, pour out libations, join the revel rout, and crown your head. It is not Dionysus that will force chastity on women in their love. But this is what we should consider, whether chastity is part of their nature for good and all. For, if it is, no really modest maid would ever fall into Bacchic mysteries. Mark this. You yourself are glad when thousands throng to your gates and citizens extol the name of Pentheus. He, too, I know, delights in being honoured. Whereas Cadmus and I, who you ridicule so, will wreathe our brows with ivy and join the dance. Pair of grey beards though we be, we must still take our part. I will not fight against heaven in your name. Your madness is sinful, and there is no charm that can cure you. It's as if charms have in fact caused your malady. Alongside Dionysus, Pentheus is the central character in the play. In fact, he is the tragic hero of the piece. But once again, his behaviour is not that of a hero in the Greek mould. His character may be drawn to display differing traits and seem quite modern to us, but the contemporary audience would most likely have focused on him as weak and indecisive. His youth is emphasised, and he suffers from hubris in his high-handed judgments and intolerant punishments, so his violent end is somewhat justified. His initial strong moral stance is undercut by his weak, suggestible character, and then shown to be something of an act once his truer nature is shown under Dionysian influence. It's at the point where Dionysus persuades him to spy on the women that we see he has a purient fascination with them, and, once again, the Greek love of irony is obvious. Shortly after having chastised the two old men for dressing up to join the women, he is quite easily persuaded by the god to do the same as a disguise to enable a stealthy approach. Surely this scene was played for a bit of comedy. The cross-dressing of the king into women's clothing must have been too good an opportunity to miss. I think Euripides understood that a comic moment at the right point in a tragedy can have a great effect – and give that moment of relief or contrast that can make the tragedy itself more bearable and effective. Almost every tragedy you could name since then has comic scenes or characters included to provide that contrast. Once Pentheus is persuaded, Dionysus gloats. Women, our prize is nearly in the net. He will soon reach the Bacchanals, and there pay forfeit with his life. O Dionysus, now is your act, for you are not far away. Let us take vengeance on him. First drive him mad by fixing in his soul a wayward frenzy. For never while his senses are his own, will he consent to don a woman's dress. But when his mind is gone astray, then he will put it on. And by Zeus I will make him a laughing stock in Thebes, as he is led in women's dress through the city, after these threats which he menaced before me. After this humiliation, Pentheus is easily tricked into climbing the tree to spy on the women, leaving him open to the god's control. The only defence here is that he is acting under the influence of the god and not his own volition, but I think by now the audience have no faith in the king's character anyway. This dressing as a woman, this spying from afar rather than going in with soldiers and arms was not the right way to tackle women who were clearly mad and dangerous. This is where Euripides puts before us the idea that it is the extremes that are the problem. Pentheus has gone from the hard, unforgiving, rational man to the soft, silly and easily led woman. Ironically, he is the type of man who will fall into the destructive depths of the Dionysian rites. In the post-Freudian world, the elements of sexual repression displayed by Pentheus have also become more emphasised. Initially, he takes a very Puritan stance in his control of the city, but this disguises a fascination with sex and the behaviours displayed by the possessed women. As he becomes more possessed by the god, he becomes purient, is persuaded into donning women's clothes and becoming a peeping tom. The transformation on stage was probably particularly obvious to the all-male audience some see the mad frenzy of the women as an expression of how Euripides felt about the war-induced atmosphere of distrust and fear in the city. By the time he was writing the Bacchae, he had become accused of treasonous opinions and acquitted, but had elected to leave the city. From his somewhat distant vantage point in Macedonia, he probably did feel safe to criticise the city leaders for their actions. He, like many other so-called traitors, had been scapegoated for the military leaders in the face of defeat. Some scholars have suggested that the play follows a very traditional form of passion play, where there is mutilation and the death of a god, and his scattered body is then recovered, and a form of resurrection takes place. You'll remember the Abydos passion play that featured in episode 1 of the podcast, where Osiris is dismembered and then miraculously put together again. But in this case, it's the mortal Pentheus who is the subject to such cruelty, so he's not resurrected but has his head taken as a totem for the cult, mistaken for a mountain lion's head by the frenzied women. That seems to me to be a plausible view and by twisting the motive of the god who can be resurrected to the man who cannot be, Euripides emphasised both the cruelty of the god and the weakness of man. The slaughtering of Pentheus and of the cattle and villagers is striking and emphasised because it was a well-known part of the Dionysian rites. There's even a specific word for it in Greek, Sparagamus. Its meaning is rendering or tearing apart, usually in the context of the Dionysian rites. And I think that the fact someone invented a specific word for those rites gives us an idea of how significant they were becoming. The play moves relentlessly to its on-stage climax. There are none of the philosophical digressions that Euripides was fond of here, and we get quickly to the tragic reversal, where the head of Pentheus is brought on, and, even more shockingly, when his mother realises what she's holding. This is as shocking as the death of Medea's children and Clytemnestra's murder, and arguably more so as we see the object held aloft, not just slumped on the echiclema after the event, or not seen at all. We get to the point quickly, but it's then cleverly paced as Cadmus talks his daughter out of her frenzy. All the time, she holds her son's head for all to see. It takes about 20 lines of dialogue for the revelation to occur, and Agave is broken by the revelation. All that is left for Dionysus is to complete the punishment of the family, and leave to spread his cult throughout the land. As his final play that brings Dionysus to his spiritual home, the Bacchae is satisfyingly meta. The audience is sat in the theatre of Dionysus, watching the manifestation of the god on stage. Perhaps the setting makes the daring of it all the more pointed, but also might make them more aware of the theatrical nature of the play. Dionysus is acting not only as the director of the action, but as stage manager and costumier as well. Some have extrapolated the concept of the Bacchae finding freedom and religious ecstasy through the Dionysian rites to suggesting that Euripides is saying that this can be achieved through theatre as well. It's a place where disguise, character change, masks, costume and symbolism could all play the same role as in religion. It seems to say that theatre and religion are both artifices and that is seductive in itself, both for the actors or the priests And the audience or the congregation. Dionysus is a figure of duality, being a god and human, a foreigner but also Greek. He's masculine, he almost certainly wore a phallus in performance, but also has an effeminate side. He's tolerant in allowing the women to question the rule of men, but then sends them into a mad frenzy. But he's not alone in all of this. All the characters display dualities that pit skepticism against religious piety reason against irrational behaviours, civility against barbarianism, Greek against foreigner and male against female. But this is not done in any simplistic way. No single character displays one trait. If duality and opposition are significant themes, then it's done through the lens of human nature, which Euripides understands is complex and shows that one or other of these characteristics is inadequate. And it's a tough battle. The struggle between the forces of restraint and control and the desire for freedom and release is fierce and, in the play, deadly. Dionysus will not be deterred from implementing his cult universally, believing that space has to be made for the anarchic and irrational in life, because that release is essential to the safe running of a good society. Euripides then tempers this with the need for wisdom and moderation, which leads to self-control. Finding that middle way can, he suggests, avoid the tyranny of strict moral order and the uncontrolled damage of excessive passion. There is a final reading of the play which is quite satisfying given its theatrical nature. This reading sees that the play is full of miraculous happenings, like the earthquake and the fire that destroy the palace, an event that seems to cause no concern to any character, so much so that there are even references to it being visited after its destruction, or like the bending of the tree to propel Pentheus to the vantage point. Add to this the fact that most characters are, for the most of the time, under the influence of Dionysus, be that induced by his presence, his wine, or the effect of mass hysteria, and the play can be seen as a fantasy. This is so dreamlike that perhaps we're supposed to assume that all the events are illusions, but that these illusions are real for the protagonists. It's a view that suggests the God has the ultimate power of control over man, so perhaps does not sit too comfortably with the views we see Euripides espousing in earlier works, but it certainly helps with explaining the supernatural and mystic framework. If all this leaves a rather ambiguous feeling, well, I don't think that's surprising. Euripides was often intentionally ambiguous, and this final play is full of ambiguities, many of which are pretty impenetrable. Dionysus is the god of excess and abandon. His power can feed creativity and pleasure but can also lead to a loss of sanity and judgment. In the end he remains mysterious and difficult to pin down and perhaps that's just what a god should be. For all its complexities I think the play does seem to capture that feeling that the best times were coming to an end. This may be the benefit of historical hindsight, but it's suggested that Euripides saw the end of the period of stability that the Athenian Golden Age was, and was trying to warn of the dangers of letting the discipline in society break down. The civilization that Athenians had built up had shone bright, but then faltered in the wake of military defeat and humiliation, and now Euripides saw the tendency to turn to the emotional, the populist and the physical, to counteract these losses. From his perch in Macedon, perhaps he did have that perspective. Next time, we change to a very different tack and look at the life of Aristophanes, the creator of old comedy. But there's still a relationship with the authors of the tragedies and the philosophers of the day. Biting satire was the order of the day and his fellow dramatists were not safe from his sharp tongue. So we can hope for a bit of a laugh over the next few weeks, Let's hope we can still find the humour in these plays, some 2,400 years after they were written. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at t-h-o-e-t-p at gmail dot com or via twitter at t-h-o-e-t-p. And finally, a note on the translations I've adapted for the plays of Euripides. My thanks to the late E.P. Coleridge, again with apologies for any element of my adaptations that he may not have liked.